Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. The scripture reading for today is 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of prophets who were, at, who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take your master away from you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep silent. Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The company of prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take your master away from you? And he answered, Yes, I know. Be silent. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the company of prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his mantle and rolled it up and struck the water. The water was parted to the one side and to the other until the two of them crossed on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me what I may do for you before I am taken from you. Elijah said, Please let me inherit a double share of your spirit. He responded, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it will be granted to you. If not, it will not. As they continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah ascended in a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha kept watching and crying out, Father, Father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. But when he could no longer see him, he grasped his own clothes and tore them into two pieces. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let's start with the strange and very ancient story of the prophet Elijah and his chosen successor, the tongue-twistingly named Elisha. I'll read the gospel lesson, the story of the transfiguration of Jesus, which is pictured on the front of your bulletin in a minute. But let's start with Elijah and Elisha. Elijah, ancient Israel's most revered prophet, had the difficult and dangerous job of calling out 
the godless corruption of the government of his time nearly three millennia ago, in case you thought that was only a more modern phenomenon. <laughs> he nearly starved to death in the desert, Elijah did, while hiding from vicious rulers whose names have become synonymous with despotism, Ahab and Jezebel. But Elijah was also the one who was granted also in the wilderness that remarkable revelation of God that you might remember from Sunday school or from a good sermon. The one where Elijah took shelter in a mountain cave while God passed by. And there was a mighty wind and there was an earthquake and there was a fire. But God was not in any of these. And then, after all that, only a still, small voice. As though God's vastness were so nimble and sublime that it could clothe itself even in a whisper. Well, now, as Callie read, we're at the end of Elijah's career. And as everyone in this morning's story already seems to have figured out, Elijah is about to be taken away. And Elisha is following along with Elijah on a journey deeper and deeper into the wilderness to a place where, well, to a place where something conclusive seems likely to happen. And all of this is being watched at a respectful distance by a company of prophets who constitute a kind of movement of resistance to the evil that had run amok in the world at that time. Three times, as you heard, three times while they're traveling together, Elijah turns to Elisha and says, are you sure you're up for this? You could turn back now. And three times, Elisha says, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. Elisha both knows and doesn't know the implications of what's coming. Somehow, when this is all finished, he will be alone. By the time they're on the far side of the Jordan River, at the great unmapped edge of the world where Moses was last seen and where John the Baptist would someday appear, Elijah turns to his companion one final time and says, Tell me what you need before I'm gone. Elisha has begun to realize that the mantle is about to fall on him. So he asks for a double share of the prophet's spirit. He knows he'll, lead, he'll need at least that in order to do what's going to need to be done. You have asked a hard thing, Elijah says. But if you can stay and watch what's about to happen, you'll find what you need. Elijah knows that counterintuitive thing, that the way to find the inspiration you need is to look unblinkingly toward the very heart of the very thing that you fear and then to steer right for it. What's being asked of the one who will be left to continue is something that's hard, but it's not out of reach. And it will require clarity about what's happening, honesty about the loss that it represents, courage for the change that's coming, 
and faithfulness to the work that remains still to be done. Clarity, honesty, courage, faithfulness. So let's pause right here to name a remarkable resonance. You know a lot about coming a long way on an arduous journey through what feels like wilderness to a place where a leader is suddenly gone. You know what Elisha learns, that the change isn't so much the end of anything as it is the beginning of something else. The way forward is daunting and will become a bit unscrutable, inscrutable for a while, though God knows the stakes are as high as ever or higher. And this is what you know now, and the courage and the stamina to do the work from that point come from staring the loss, the change, the uncertainty right in the eye and steering straight for them with full confidence in the double portion of spirit that God offers to this company of prophets, this movement of yours to plant the seeds of justice and gentleness and hope, hope most of all, to plant those things in the yearning fields of this city and its great university and this nation and this world. Elijah, remarkably, also shows up in the story of the transfiguration of Jesus. So now I'll read from Matthew chapter 17. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. From the cloud, a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Now it's a big stride, I admit, across nine centuries from the fiery chariot in the wilderness to the mountain of transfiguration. And you could hardly be blamed for feeling a little bit of chronological whiplash in meeting Elijah in both places. But the people of Israel have always felt that Elijah was a particularly agile character, to the point where, as perhaps you know, 
To this day, they still set a place for him at the Seder table on Passover, where his return is always expected to announce the fruition at last of all the work that's never quite been finished. I guess that if you were last seen ascending in a fiery chariot, there's no telling when or where or how you might show up in the future. Anyway, here is Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, making common cause with Jesus and Moses. And with those awestruck fishermen watching through the haze of glory, like Elisha watching the fiery chariot, maybe, trying to figure out what the special effects mean and what the implications might be for them. You can hardly blame Peter for proposing that it might be a good thing for them to mark the spot by building, I don't know, some kind of shrine, three dwellings, he says, or booths or something, as a way to commemorate the religious experience as a way to hang on to at least a moment of dazzling clarity in the midst of work whose destination seemed sometimes murky and most times daunting. It's interesting that we've made a holy day out of an event which Jesus sternly instructed those who witnessed it to say nothing about, at least not until after the Son of Man had been raised from the dead. We can almost hear Jesus saying on the way down the mountain, what you just experienced isn't going to make sense to you for a while. And indeed, the gospel says that the disciples continued to turn what they had seen and heard on the mountaintop over and over in their minds, wondering what it might eventually come to mean to them. When, finally, Jesus was raised from the dead, It's interesting that it could hardly have been less like the transfiguration. No heavenly voices or apparitions of religious celebrities and God wearing not luminous robes, but just whispers by the subtle light of deep dawn on an ordinary Sunday morning. Now I'm getting ahead of the story I know with all this talk about Easter, but Not really. The transfiguration story, as we heard, begins with the words, Six days later, Jesus took Peter and James and his brother John up a high mountain by themselves. Six days later, six days after what exactly? Well, six days after he had had a conversation with them that caused its own waves of dismay because it was the first time that Jesus broke the news to them that he himself would be taken away from them. He began to show them, says the Gospel narrator, just before our story of the Transfiguration begins. He began to show them that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the religious authorities and be killed. And this news didn't go over well. Maybe. Maybe if he'd said to them like Elijah, tell me what you need before I'm gone, they might have replied, show us where all this is heading. Dazzle us with some confirmation that we'll be able to do what's asked of us when we get there. No wonder the church down through the ages has wanted to remember that mountaintop moment of illumination as a counterpoint to a daunting transition and a lot of unfinished work. 
The memory of glory only makes sense when the ones who remain look back to see that that was when they took hold of the best clarity and honesty and courage and faithfulness that they could muster. As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will never leave you. It was then that they found in and among themselves the wherewithal to keep the movement alive, found what they needed to lead, what they started out just watching. So here's a much smaller stride across history. Back just 52 years. 52 years ago, right now, in February, in fact, when the sanitation workers in the city of Memphis, Tennessee were on strike to press for humane working conditions in their city and a living wage and to face down the vicious despot Jim Crow. By about this time that winter, their nonviolent sit-ins and work stoppages had started to capture the imagination not only of Memphis but of the whole nation. You all know how this story came out. Martin Luther King Jr. made his way to Memphis to try to help them hold a delicate balance between supporting the workers on the one hand and keeping the simmering possibility of violence at bay on the other. It was a volatile situation, a difficult and dangerous time to stand for justice in the face of despots. If you read about it in retrospect, People seemed to have known what might happen, even Dr. King. On the night of April 3rd, he put what seemed like a double share of spirit into a sermon in which he said, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned with that now. To a room full of Peters and Jameses and Johns and Marys and Marthas and Lydias, he said, I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. People may have come that night thinking that they were standing on a flat place, just watching the next chapter of the struggle play out. Maybe it took them a little while to realize that they'd been taken up a mountain, a little while to turn those words about the promised land over and over in their heads, wondering what they meant, what the implications were for them. The last words of that speech on April 3rd, 52 years ago, The last words most of us ever heard Dr. King say here on this earth were from the old hymn, My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Now the story of that night seems to be about Dr. King, just like the story of the transfiguration seems to be about the glory that enveloped Jesus. But I've been turning the stories of those things that happened over and over in my head and What keeps happening is that I end up focused on a different transfiguration. In the end, the stories do seem to be about glory. But the real glory is the sight of those flummoxed, 
tremulous, spirit-hungry people, bereft of a leader, staring straight into the uncertainty of what now lies ahead. The real glory comes when they make eye contact with what looks like a terrible loss and find that they do actually have the clarity and honesty and courage and faithfulness to become themselves a company of prophets. The real transfiguration comes when right at the outer edge of the world they know, those people realize that holding fast to the strong and permanent company of Jesus, their eyes have seen the glory. They have indeed received a double portion of spirit so that they end up ready to lead what they started out just watching. May it be so. Amen. And let us continue on in a spirit of prayer. Let us pray. In this unique moment, O God, this strange liminal space between Epiphany and Lent, we come before you. From the moment of your birth on that blessed night, we sought to take the flickers of light in our candles into the dark world, enlightening those who know us of our joy at your coming to have integrity as we seek to live the gift of your teaching and share the wonder of your healing presence. Inevitably, we must face the other part of your story. We will relive that story, too, just steps away now from the horror of your undoing at the hands of those who would not or could not embrace your way of life. On the brink of Lent, we bow our heads and our hearts, knowing that those ashes that will be smudged on our forehead on Wednesday stand for something so much more than a dusty, dark cross that mark our humanity. We haven't forgotten where it all ends, but we put that aside, this anticipation for something so beyond describing that we may endure these small and painful steps of Lent. Help us to start this journey of remembering, of experiencing as this week unfolds. If we listen, if we are attentive, if we try even a little, we know, O oh God, that your story changes us. More than transfiguring our appearance, this season of Lent that you give us can bring us transformed lives, our lives more whole, more healed, more real, more right. Today, in these moments, we, like Peter, James, and John, are waiting, perhaps not your appearance in dazzling light and unmistakable clarity, as if we could handle that, but rather we await a glimpse of you, Jesus, our way through the mix and mess of this life, and not to merely glimpse that Jesus who is the truth, the love that's stronger than hate, the peace and equality are possible but to glimpse a church worldwide and united who works to make that truth known. We pray we could glimpse that Jesus who is life, who invites us to follow his way of love and justice, to put our faith into action, to stand up and speak out, not to be silenced by fear or distracted by our own needs, that in seeing him you would help us to move beyond apathy into empathy and action, 
We give thanks for the good news that unfolds in the world as people dream your dreams and follow your nudging and seek you in the faces they meet each day. Perhaps, O oh God, it is the only transfiguration we really need. For all those who are quiet witnesses to your love and way of life, all those special snowflakes, we are so grateful. In our intercessions today, we pray not just for ourselves and the church, but for the world. Our planet is fragile, and so is the life that claims it as home. We confess that we take what we want with little regard for what it costs your creation. And so we see a planet crying for relief through floods and fires and hurricanes, and then the earthquakes that try and shake our consciousness, and the gale-force winds that blow sighs too deep for words. Move us beyond our hand-wringing to hand-holding and tangible action. Give us some hope that it's not too late. Burn away ignorance and hypocrisy and greed and fear so that new life can begin to sprout and we can get it together. We pray for the people of the world whose names we will never know, those who bear the weight of Earth's pain. As always, merciful one, we pray for those who are suffering. We hold close those who are dying and those who wait with them to move through death to life everlasting. In your mercy, let us be merciful. Let us leave here today, O oh God, drawn us to the rhythm of Lent as it unfolds in our midst, a sacred invitation to explore the corners of our souls. Open us to your light that we might see ourselves clearly with our fears and faults and faith, our desires, our dreams, our duties. Help us to see our journey as a place of your appearing that like Peter, James, and John, we may come down from the mountain and set one foot in front of the other in your name and for your sake. For it is in your name and for your sake and in your words that we pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.